Thanks for choosing a 3CR podcast. Throughout June, we're running our annual Radiothon, when we ask you, the listener, to make a donation so that we can continue to make great radio. Your donation will help keep us community-owned and community-controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. And with that done, please enjoy your podcast. Good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Program, the Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools. As you well know, we're here every Saturday at 12 o'clock, come rain, shine or COVID. And uh, we're here today to talk about COVID and going back to school. Now, there's a lot of uh, concern about this from parents, teachers and, of course, students, because there's a question of who's vaccinated and who isn't vaccinated and where all those wonderful tests, those um, antigen tests are going to arrive, when, where, how, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, we thought that, that today we'd try to inform you as much as we can about what we think is really going on. We have a press release and Oliver's going to lead us off with press release 922, the Australian schools open in play strolling out with a wing and a pre question mark. Over to you, Oliver. Thank you, Jean. According to the paediatricians, the indirect impacts of public health measures may be more detrimental to the well-being of children and adolescents than catching COVID. According to The Guardian, a research review from the Murdoch Children's Research Institute, led by paediatrician Professor, Professor Sharon Goldfield, Goldfeld, sorry, said interventions needed to be developed now to address growing disparities in child health and well-being due to the pandemic. Goldfeld said children were facing a generation-defining disruption with public health restrictions and interventions such as online learning, social distancing, increased screen time, reduced access to healthcare, less community support and less outside play, all having repercussions. The public health measures have resulted in positive benefits for some, while others have been adversely and inequitably impacted, Goldfeld said. Children and adolescents experiencing adversity before the pandemic have been disproportionately affected, potentially leading to a widening of disparities in child health, well-being, and developmental outcomes. The review published in the Medical Journal of Australia, MJA, on Monday includes findings from a Royal Children's Hospital poll that found one third of Australian parents felt that the pandemic had negatively affected the mental health of their child and that 31% of parents had delayed or avoided medical care for a sick or injured child due to concerns about catching the virus. A separate study found some children and adolescents infected with the virus experienced stigma and mental health distress, such as difficulty sleeping, having nightmares and withdrawing from friends. The review also refers to kids' helpline data. 
and pedi pediatric emergency department data that shows a rapid rise in mental health and self-harm presentations. Associate Professor Nicholas Wood, a pediatrician with the Children's Hospital Westmead, said he heard reports of children not wanting to leave their house because they were so anxious and worried about COVID. I think they're going to have to be, there's going to have to be some effort put into resilience building programs for children, whether that's through schools or communities, he said. There has also always been an issue with access to mental health support in the community. It's very hard to get your children into a psychologist or psychiatrist, and we must be thinking about these and other services children will be needing access to during and post-pandemic. A survey of 5,000 teachers cited in the MJA review found only 35% of them reported their students were learning effectively during lockdowns. The achievement gap between advantaged and disadvantaged students grows at triple the rate through remote learning, the review estimated. Goldfeld said some families lack the resources and time needed to support their children during remote education. It will be difficult to predict how long it will take those with lost learning to catch up, but strategies to identify those left behind and targeted long-term interventions for those especially in low socioeconomic school settings will be critical, she said. This research has come at just the right time for politicians wishing to push teachers and children back to school as we enter the living with COVID phase of the pandemic. But there is another side to this, and Kim will tell us a bit about that. Thanks, Oliver. Are our schools and teachers ready, willing, and able to return to underfunded public schools without the certainty of vaccinations, adequate ventilation, and even basic antigen chests and masks? Anthony Albanese has cashed in politically to the situation, promising a $440 million plan to revitalize schools. But public school supporters have no guarantee that, as usual, private schools won't game that system the way they have gained JobKeeper and every other funding provided for needy children. And as the statistics become more and more rubbery, what is known is that fewer than half of primary school aged children will have a first vaccination by the time school resumes in the next week. Nationally, 29% of 5 to 11 year olds have had a first vaccination. With 662,297 doses administered, there are 2.3 million in that age group. And how many of those children are from the lower socioeconomic groups? The New South Wales Teachers Federation has been calling since October for children's vaccinations to be fast-tracked with the goal of having the majority fully vaccinated by the beginning of the school year. But once again, this vaccination rollout has become a stroll out. The New South Wales and Victoria Premiers, however, are determined to proceed. In Queensland, however, the Health Minister is concerned that the state's vaccination rate of children, especially teenagers, is too low to enable a prompt safe return. Just over a quarter of 5 to 11-year-olds have received a first dose in Queensland, and just under 67% of Queensland teenagers are fully vaccinated. So, Queensland has delayed the beginning of first school term by two weeks, moving the date to February 7, except for Year 11 and 12 students, who will begin home learning from January 31st. Well, we'll have a little bit of a break. And then Sorrel's um, going to tell us a bit more about uh, where the teachers stand, because over in South Australia, they are taking a stand. You can see that this country is covered in the blood of Aboriginal people, and the length and breadth of it. Australia is a part of an undeclared war and a secret invasion. And it began 250 years ago. 
And we have a country that's built on lies, deceit, fraud, propaganda, and race hatred indoctrination. And it's been 250 years of us being oppressed in our own land, brutally. We might be oppressed, but we understand what freedom is, and we fight for it every day, and we've resisted this occupation since day one. And I predict colonialism, capitalism, imperialism is going to get knocked out cold. Tricia, your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. Well, we hope you're still with us and you listen to the dogs program because this is a program about going back to school in times of plague. And um, Sorrel is going to tell us about what the South Australian Teachers Federation thinks about all of this. Over to you, Sorrel. Thanks, Jean. So the AEU members from around South Australia have participated in a stop work ballot to ensure that their health and safety concerns are heard and addressed by the Department for Education and the state government. Prior to the ballot, this was not the case. All preschool and school members were balloted and almost two thirds support taking industrial action in the form of a full day stoppage on Wednesday, the 2nd of February. Like Minister John Gardner, AEU members also want the best education for children and students. And that means education in a safe learning environment. The government and the department have an obligation to ensure that all learning spaces are safe for children, students and staff, and that all reasonable and practical measures to create safe learning environments have been implemented. Since the vote was put to members, DFE and the AEU have been in constructive negotiations, and while some concerns have been addressed, others require further discussion. AEU negotiators have been guided by these questions. One, is it safe for staff and students? Two, does the measure slow the spread of Omicron? Three, is it consistent across sites? Four, does the measure address well-being and mental health concerns? And five, how does the measure impact upon workloads? Unlike the health sector, with the provision of full PPE that includes N95 masks and face shields, educators will return to classes of up to 29 students with measures that include, at best, N95 masks in some classroom situations, social distancing, albeit impossible for many, sanitising and cleaning with the option to teach outside if weather permits, and open windows if possible. Tomorrow, AEU executive will consider progress made since Wednesday, the 19th of January. If executive believes sufficient progress has been made, then members will be reballoted to postpone the action. Conversely, if executive is dissatisfied, then the action will remain on foot pending any timely additional progress in discussions. And the interesting thing is that the um, politicians in South Australia are taking this seriously. They are talking with the teachers. They suddenly realise perhaps the teachers are important in all of this if they're going to try and get children back to school. But they should have perhaps remembered that before they started. So what do the dogs think about this, uh, Sorrel? 
The dog's comment is that the current situation is shocking for children, parents and teachers. They're caught in choices between bad and lousy. As with our public hospitals, years of government neglect and privatisation policies are now having a most grievous effect on both the disadvantaged and the middle income groups in our society. Stop gap measures are no longer enough. Yes, well, we'll have a, a bit of a break and then we'll come back to look at what the ABC has been trying to do to inform people about all of this. Do you need to renew your subscription? Make a donation. Or pass on some information to a programmer. We can't get to the phone all the time right now, but we're still here. You can call us on 03-9419-8377. Each weekday between 1 and 5pm and talk to a staff member. That's 03-9419-8377. 3CR Community Radio, here to stay. ABC has been quite informative, uh, particularly for parents, um, in the last week. And uh, we'll just give you a little snippet from the ABC. They mainly uh, are interested in the politics, of course, and Mr. as is Mr. Albanese. And it will be interesting to see how, how, how seriously people actually take him with his $440 million offer. In 2022, Anthony Albanese is spruiking better times ahead for Australians under a Labor government in the post-pandemic era. Central to Mr Albanese's address, a $440 million commitment for the nation's schools, the better ventilation, building upgrades and mental health support for Australian students. We're talking about quite simple things to do. Tanya Plibersek is the Shadow Education Minister. Buying extra air filters, upgrading existing air conditioning, cooling and heating systems, uh, moving classrooms outdoors, putting up shade structures and so on. These are things that are, are pretty simple, can be done pretty quickly, but at the moment depend on the election of a Labor government. Tanya Plibersek says half of the new money will be spent on putting more counsellors and psychologists in schools, monitoring the welfare of students in the wake of lockdown learning. They miss their friends, they miss their teachers, they miss being able to kick a ball around in the playground at lunchtime, they miss sleepovers and 16th birthday parties and school formals and all of the things that we remember as rites of passage growing up, kids are struggling with having missed out on those things for two years. Well, there's plenty of politics in this play, but the question for parents is, what is going to happen next Monday on the 31st when the children go back to school? Just what is, what are they to do? What is expected of them? And uh, you'll find a very interesting question and answer uh, section on the ABC website. But we're going to read it out for you. Oliver and Kim are going to tell you um, just a bit of information for parents when they take their children to school next week. Over to you, Oliver and Kim. Thanks, Jean. Um, Victoria Premier Daniel Andrews has outlined a plan to get students and teachers back to school in a COVID-safe way. Uh, here is everything parents need to know about the back-to-school plans. 
starting off with rapid antigen tests. How often does my child need to do a rapid antigen test, Ollie? Well, Kim, school students and staff, as well as early childhood education and care staff, will be given rapid antigen tests to do at home twice weekly for at least the first four weeks of term. Students and staff at, a special, at special education schools will be asked to do five rapid antigen tests a week. Next so, question. So do I have to source and pay for rats to test my child? No. The Victorian government has 14 million rats on order solely for surveillance testing in schools. The first few million will arrive in schools over the coming days with parents set to be contacted to come and pick up the tests. The federal government has committed to funding half of the surveillance testing program. Okay, so well, that's, not, that's not certain, is it? Um, there's, they say that they're on order. They say that they're going to arrive and it's the parents who've got to collect them. Now, moving on to masks in schools, uh, who needs to wear a mask in schools, Ollie? Welcome. Masks will be man mandatory for students in grade three and above when indoors and for staff other than when they are communicating or teaching from the front of the classroom, where a mask may, be, may impede their ability to teach. Mask wearing is recommended for students in prep to grade two, but authorities say they understand the common sense challenge of the very little ones wearing a mask. Mm, big challenge indeed. Uh, next question, do I need to provide a mask for my children myself? If you like, you can, but child-sized surgical masks will be provided free for all students with millions being distributed from next week. So are cloth masks allowed if I want my child to take their own fun one in themselves? Yes, but surgical masks are recommended. The best masks are, in fact, are the in 95, aren't they? These cloth masks and the surgical masks are, are the question with Omicron. So I wonder the, about that too. The next question will be about classroom logistics. Yeah. Kim, will all extracurricular activities like sport, music, dance and camps continue? Yes, but camps could be cancelled at late notice if there is not enough teaching staff to resource them. Okay. And will my child's lessons take place indoors and what protections are on offer? Well, the Victorian government is offering shade sale grants to schools to encourage as much outdoor learning as possible. More than 61,000 air purifiers will have been installed in schools by the beginning of term one, but not in every classroom. These air purifiers will be focused on high risk settings like music rooms, staff rooms, indoor canteens, sick bays and rooms with poor ventilation. But what happens if my child has a runny nose or a slight cough? Children with any COVID-19 symptoms should be tested for COVID-19 and kept at home, even if they test negative on a rapid antigen test until their symptoms subside. If your child does become sick while at school, they will be sent straight to the sick bay and you will be called straight away before a rapid antigen test is performed. Well, that's good. But what if, what happens if my child's teacher tests positive for COVID-19? A pool of inactive teachers, education support staff, retired principals and surge administrative support staff has been launched, which will be available for schools to access when COVID-19 impacts their workforce. Classrooms could also be combined temporarily to deal with staff shortages. And what might happen if a student in my child's class tests positive? Under the change in close contact rules, children who are in the same classroom as a positive case will not be deemed close contacts. Instead, if a child tests positive, their classmates' parents will be advised of the case and told to look out for symptoms. 
Surveillance testing will be carried out twice weekly in case there are any asymptomatic students. We'll move on to questions about vaccinations. Do teachers need to get a third dose? Well, yes. Teachers and other school staff will be required to have received their third dose by February 25th if they're eligible, or else three months and two weeks after their second dose. Mr Merlino said considering 99.7% of the school workforce had been double vaccinated by the end of term four, he had every confidence there would be a good take up of the third dose mandate. Okay, so does my child need to be vaccinated? Well, children aged five to 11 are now eligible for their COVID-19 vaccination with just under 30% already having received their first dose. There are more than 66,000 vaccine appointments available over the coming month and authorities hope that every child will have received their first dose before the end of term one. Well, thank you very much. I hope that helps uh, parents and teachers who are listening to our program and also grandparents. Uh, I, I thought that that was quite helpful, although it leaves a lot of other questions unanswered, doesn't it? So um, we'll have a bit of a break and then Sol is going to come back and tell us what the Australian Council of State School Organisations, that's the parents' organisation, has to say about children going back to school in times of plague. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. You're listening to the Dogs Program, I hope, and we're now going to go to Sol, who will tell us about the uh, research that AXO, that's the Australian Council of State School Organisations, it's a peak body for all parents of public school children around Australia, uh, what they have to say about going back to school. Over to you, Sol. Thanks, Jane. So what they have to say about going back to school is that the majority of families are anxious about their children returning to school at the beginning of the 2022 school year, stated Sharon Healy, the president of the Australian Council of State School Organisations. They recently conducted a national survey of parents with school-aged children, and the data from it is in line with data from other surveys released. There is a grave hesitation, especially with the high case numbers and the short period of time for kids aged 5 to 11 to have had their first vaccination. Almost half of respondents, 44%, felt that the school year should be delayed, with a significant number, 38%, indicating that they would withhold their children from attending. The Australian Council for, of State School Organisations Limited survey goes further in identifying the three major areas causing the most concern, ventilation, vaccination and verification. The major cause for concern was the air quality and the appropriate ventilation in our classrooms. 
The simple fact is air purifiers are the only way for many classrooms to maintain reduced viral load. Simply opening windows and doors has proven in the past to be ineffective in dealing with nitrous oxide emissions from gas heaters, and current research suggests that it is ineffective in dealing with high CO2 levels. Why then would we be expecting it to be effective in reducing viral load? Governments need to invest and ensure suitable air quality in the learning space of our children, Sharon continued. Vaccination protection was the next level of concern. Families who are supportive of mandatory vaccination, almost 70% of school staff, are equally in support of vaccination for their children. Their level of concern going back to school comes with the availability and timing of vaccination for younger students. The timing of boosters for staff and the approval of boosters for 12 to 18 year old students. ACSSO specifically asked if parents would be happy if school staff administered the rapid antigen tests. While most parents are happy for rats to be part of the safety measures, it is interesting to note that 58% responded positively to this suggestion. However, it is also significant of the parents happy for the testing to occur, 42% were not comfortable for the testing to be done by school staff. If governments are insistent of rats pests being part of the school regime, then additional trained workers should be provided to conduct the process for consistency. We believe that a positive rat test should be verified by a PCR test. In line with community concerns, there was a level of community feedback that reflected their objection to mandatory vaccination and the current health advice relating to the COVID virus. We call on the National Cabinet to give school communities a level of certainty in this uncertain world, a tangible, detailed plan on school reopening. What are the safety measures in place? How will they differ from last year? What are the triggers for closure? What happens if there is an outbreak? What constitutes an outbreak? What is a close contact? And what happens if there are teacher shortages due to illness slash quarantine? We demand that governments invest in the necessary levels of technology and staff to provide the confidence for school communities that schools are safe places for students and staff, stated Mrs Healy. The level of concern and confusion can be summed up with this particular response to our survey. It is hard to know what the right thing to do is. The national survey conducted over the past 10 years by the Australian Council of State School Organisations Oh, sorry, over the past 10 days, not the past 10 years, returned over 5,700 responses and included families from every state and territory and every sector. Very interesting. Uh, And quite rightly, they're saying, yes, this is what, what the principles are. This is what's going to happen. But the real question is, how is it going to happen? Who is going to do the antigen testing? Is is that going to just be another burden on the teachers or is it going to be another burden on the parents or is it actually going to be done by people who are specialists in the area? And that would take money and and manpower. Uh, So once again, it's a bit of a, um, well, one wonders whether there's been any real planning going, going into it. But we'll have a bit of a break and then we'll have a look at what's happening elsewhere in the world where, in fact, the schools have already gone back in the winter of Europe. 
Kafirs are Palestinian scarves and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafirs, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kafir to an array of modern designs, all scarves are just $30 each. Explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafiyas.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Well, welcome back to the Dogs Program. We've been trying to inform you of where the teachers, parents and some students are at in, uh, in Australia with the schools going back in time of plague. Uh, in the next um, time we, we've got left to us, we'd like to tell you something about what's going on overseas. Uh, how, for example, in England, at least one teacher has had some pretty bad experiences. Over to Dale. Thank you, Jean. Yeah, I've got an article here about the situation in England. It's been awful. Teachers at English secondary schools on the first week back, pupils are not wearing masks, and that's a major worry, as is a very heavy workload due to staff off with Omicron, they say. Mask wearing is unenforceable in English secondary schools, leading to staff concerns about catching COVID, possibly for the second or third time. So in England, following a Christmas break full of uncertainty about further restrictions, a rise in the number of Omicron COVID cases and dis disrupted Christmas plans due to self-isolating family members, pupils returned to school at the start of January for a new term. Only a few days before teachers returned to school, new advice emerged from the Department of Education, the DfE, Department for Education, DfE, saying all secondary school pupils should wear masks in classrooms in an attempt to stem a rise in cases of the Omicron variant. Three teachers in England speak about their first week of term and their concerns for the coming week. I don't think I've known it this bad since I started teaching nearly 20 years ago. It's been awful, said Julia, who teaches at a secondary school in London. We've had less, we had less than half of our students show up for a lateral flow test before the start of term. And quite a few of our parents didn't grant permission for their children to be tested. Julia says she feels concerned as students are hesitant to wear masks and a significant portion of their staff are off sick. We're already talking about having to send students home as we don't have enough cover, said the 50-year-old who's been in the profession for nearly 20 years. I'm fully jabbed and have, a, and have had COVID twice. Catching it again is an inevitability at this point. She said her school has a high number of disadvantaged children and the situation with COVID has become more difficult following years of little to no funding. We don't have enough toilets, so we use portaloos. And sometimes when it rains too much, my classroom, in my classroom, it floods. At the end of the day, it's the children who lose out. 
I think this government is the absolute pits and schools are being hung out to dry. Announcements are left to the last minute when bigger picture thinking would be a great help. At the end of the day, good teaching happens when you can plan effectively. I don't think I've known it this bad in schools since I've started teaching. We feel hamstrung. And then Tom Forty, a deputy head teacher in Essex, who leads his secondary school's COVID response, said staff and student absences at their highest have been at their highest this term since the start of the pandemic. We've been letting a different year group back into the school each day and doing on-site testing. But we wait for year groups as we wait for year groups to come in, we're finding that pupils are testing positive, he said. So I've been spending much of my time informing staff of students who are positive, making sure online learning is set up and letting families know when their child will return. We've got so many that we've had to put them in on, we'd have, we've had to put them on a centralised spreadsheet. The school is well prepared for remote teaching, said Tom, but staff shortages concern him. In mid-December, we started to get hit quite badly. At the beginning of the holiday, myself and 20% of my colleagues tested positive. It was my second positive result during the pandemic. It was obviously disarming for those of us who couldn't see our families over the Christmas period. This term, the school has introduced the compulsory wearing of masks in communal spaces, according to government guidance. However, Tom's frustrated that the rule is unenforceable. The DfE said no child should be denied an education if they refuse to wear a mask. The vast majority of our students are really good about it, but we feel a bit hamstrung. The DfE doesn't seem to be able to make a decision. I'm not sure how much longer I can continue. And for Amanda in Birmingham, the COVID situation at her school is better than they expected it to be. We haven't had as many absences compared to other times during the pandemic, said the secondary school teacher. Staff absence is very low and our children have been incredibly compliant about masks. Her main concern is the lack of ventilation and the threat of an inspection from Ofsted. I have a CO2 monitor in my classroom, but no real guidance on how to use it. The readings appear to be normal, but if it gets high, what am I supposed to do? I already have the windows open. Workload is a huge problem at the moment. We're trying to help students catch up and prepare them for exams and teacher-assessed grades, all, all the while with the threat of Ofsted hanging over us. It's a fear for many of us, and feels like the DfE have forgotten teachers are not immune to the pressures of COVID, let alone preparing for an inspection. With the added pay freeze from 2021, Amanda and her colleagues are feeling the pinch of the continuing pressure. Teaching used to be a well-paid job with a good pension, but with inflation at an all-time high and energy bills going up, now I'm not sure how much longer I can continue. Back to you, Jean. How interesting. So um, they've all, the, the English have been living with COVID. Uh, the teachers are being forced to live with COVID and this is what we're now forcing our teachers and uh, students into. Um, but it seems that one of the big problems is that wearing masks or doing tests is in fact not mandatory. 
and it's not going to be so in, in Australia either. Uh, the politicians can say that things should be done, but how can they ensure that they will be done? And the people who lose out, of course, are the innocent, the uh, children and the teachers. But um, so what's happening in Norway? Sorrel, can you tell us what's happening in Norway? Yes, Jean. So in Norway, uh Unlike in some other high-income countries, schools and preschools in Norway have largely remained open with flexible mitigation measures in place. In the first year of the pandemic, around 214 million students missed more than 75% of their in-person learning. This is a very serious issue because education is one of the strongest predictors of a population's health and prosperity. Children have reported lower cases and rates of hospitalization. Cases and outbreaks in schools and preschools seem to reflect these local incidence levels. Schools and preschools in Norway briefly closed in the spring of 2020, but later reopened in late April 2020 with mitigation measures. Since then, most schools have reopened, with some secondary schools closing in response to local outbreaks. A flexible traffic light model adaptable to the local epidemiological situation and age group was developed in Norway, which had three levels of measures, green for normal, yellow for intermediate and red for distance requirements. The contact reducing measures were the key difference across these three categories. Face masks were rarely used for staff and older students only and restricted to areas with high ongoing community transition. The current study aimed to shed light on the cases and clusters of outbreaks of COVID-19 in Norwegian preschools and schools. The study period has covered most of the academic year in 2020 to 2021, and this included both the second wave and the third wave dominated by the alpha variant. The Norwegian contact tracing team initiated systematic surveillance of COVID-19 cases and clusters. Data from this study was collected from the National Outbreak Alert System, where all outbreaks suspected or confirmed are reported to the Norwegian Institute of Public Health. Additionally, researchers scanned the 20 largest municipality websites and the media. The main findings of this study have been that many cases and outbreaks were observed in schools and preschools during this period. However, it must be noted that only a fraction of the outbreaks included more than 20 cases. In the second wave, most cases were seen in older pupils, whilst in the third wave, with the introduction of the alpha variant, the incidence in the youngest children came close to the older pupils. The highest number of outbreaks was observed in primary schools and preschools, but this could have been driven by the fact that there are more such schools in Norway than secondary schools. Also, stricter mitigation measures were implemented in secondary and higher schools during periods with high transmission rates. As the third wave subsided, more cases were observed in upper secondary schools and the timing coincided with graduation ceremonies. Staff in preschools and primary schools showed a higher number of cases, probably because of the higher number of staff per child in these settings. 
Evidence on the impact of school closures in reducing community transmission is scarce and varies from no to some effect. Norwegian data showed that closure had no added effects than open schools with strict control measures, and that's the red traffic light level. The incidence in children and adolescents largely followed the trend in this community. Scientists were of the opinion that school closures might not lead to an actual reduction in contact among pupils. They observed more cases after school holidays. Additionally, an increasing number of studies indicate that closing schools has a limited effect on the transmission of COVID-19. Given that there are negative effects of closing schools, we should always try to strive to limit school closures as much as possible. The study relies on high quality registry data, providing detailed information on the incidents in the different age groups. Combining this with other data sources has enabled scientists to present a more detailed result regarding outbreaks in preschools and schools. There, however, were some limitations as well. Although reporting in the VESUV system is mandatory, scientists were aware that not all outbreaks were notified. Further, the quality of information available through the municipality websites and the news media could be of varying quality. Researchers also stated that some outbreaks could be excluded due to the missing information on the number of cases. Very interesting. Um, it sounds as if they're trying to say that it's better to have them open than closed. Well, um, of course, the Australian politicians would rather like that. Uh, Germany is a very interesting case, however, uh, because uh, although children in multiple German states are returning to school um, after the Christmas break, there are concerns growing over a potential surge in the Omicron cases. And some states are, in fact, uh, quite concerned enough to talk about lockdowns again. Children in multiple German states are returning to school this week after the Christmas break as concerns grow over a potential surge in Omicron cases. School children are back at their desks this week in Germany with students in every state except Thuringia uh, required to be present at in-person classes. Mecklenburg, West Pomerania, Rhineland-Palatinate, Saxony, Brandenburg and Berlin all begin classes on Monday, with other states starting up again in the next few days. Virtual classes are still the rule in Thuringia until Wednesday, when schools can decide for themselves whether to open for in-person classes. The return to school comes as Omicron cases continue to rise in Germany. On Monday, 3,524 Omicron cases were reported by the health authorities, an increase of 13% compared to the previous day. Since November the 15th, when laboratories started testing for the variant, the Robert Koch Institute has recorded 30,325 confirmed or suspected Omicron infections. There are fears that close contact in classrooms and insufficient protection measures could cause schools to become a breeding ground for the highly transmissible variant, but state education ministers are determined to keep in-person teaching in the place for the time being. Masks are a must. 
On Monday, Germany's new education minister, Bettina Stark-Watzinger of the Free Democrats, tweeted that in-person classes were a question of preserving equal opportunities for students and that everything needed to be done to keep schools open. To this end, the, the city-state of Berlin plans to give school children three free COVID-19 tests per week to facilitate face-to-face -face teaching with vaccinated children exempt from this requirement. Alongside frequent testing, Federal Health Minister Karl Lautenbach told the Bild am Sonntag newspaper that masks are an absolute must in schools. An infected person's viral load is lower with an, with an Omicron variant, so masks work better, he said. A debate has also flared up in recent days between teachers' unions who have called for schools not to remain open at any cost and paediatricians who have emphasised the importance of in-person teaching. Speaking to the Erze Zeitung, uh, Thomas Fischbach, president of the Professional Association of Paediatricians and Adolescent Doctors, the BVKJ, called on public politicians to avoid school closures for as long as possible. There is a clear and unmistakable commitment from politicians to consider school closures, if at all, as the very last option, said Fischbach. We insist on that commitment. So that's what's happening in Germany. So um, it's, all, it's all really up there. It sounds to me in Australia as if the paediatricians and some health, health, health experts are a little bit at odds about opening schools willy-nilly. And um, so we leave it to our listeners um, and hope that we've been a bit informative in this session. But um, if I was a teacher, I'd be very interested in what the South Australian teachers are demanding. And we hope, of course, that they will get it. But um, we're almost there. And, of course, we have to have our great state school of the week. Want to defend government schools? We are the DOGS, D-O-G-S, Defenders of Government Schools. Every week on the DOGS program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. If you're a parent or if you're a kid or if you're involved in the school in any way whatsoever and you love your state school, give 3CR a call. We want to hear about these schools that we're defending. Brunswick Secondary State schools are great. Parkaway Primary great School. Sunshine North Primary They're School. really concerned about the welfare of the kids and their growth as people as well as learning. You've got, gee, like, you put on plays, you've got enrichment, you've got physical education, visual arts, languages, all that. In fact, is there a cooking? Actually, an embracing of kids from disadvantaged backgrounds and with additional needs. More than half of your kids are from some of the poorest families in Australia. Yeah, definitely. That's the community and that's who we're servicing and that's who, that's who we welcome into the Outdoor school. play is linked to healthier and happier children. This, in turn, leads to better grades. In the when weekly assemblies and stuff, they have a little thing, uh, you've been caught being good, and they have a, a value of the week each week, and so it's not just words, it is actually... So, so what do the teachers do when it's a building site? Yeah, they kick themselves out of their own staff room and turn it into a classroom. Just a really nice culture and an emphasis on social skill building as well as learning. Quite a range of intellectual ability and kids with mental health diagnoses, refugee kids, kids who have not been in the country very long don't necessarily start off with a Positive great Positive relationships with each other, with the teachers and with the community. And they run a, a breakfast club. There's a recognition that some kids don't get breakfast and so there's, there's food on. If you are involved in a state school and it's a great school, we'd love to hear from you so we can talk about it and tell the world. 
Leave a message for the dogs at 3CR on 94198377. State schools are great schools. Great state schools. Every week on the Doctor Program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. And this week's great state school is Warrnambool Secondary College. We'll start off with the principal's message. <clears throat> At various points this year, it's felt as if we've been operating on um, two speeds. One speed for remote learning, where time can seem to grind to a halt, and one speed for face-to-face learning, where time is going almost too fast, given how much we've been trying to fit back in at school. And so it seems I've blinked a few times and we've somehow been transported from the start of Term 4 to near the end of 2021 classes. Since being back at school, there's been a series of challenges to overcome. Face masks in warmer weather, longer lessons full of new learning, seeing friends, peers, and teachers in the flesh for the first time in months, and amongst it all, wondering how long it'll be until we're thrust back into remote learning once again. It's little doubt that many of us are feeling a bit fatigued and frazzled as we hurtle towards the busyness of the end of the school year. Yet despite all this, I've been extremely proud of all the resilience that's been on display from staff and students alike, as we continue to focus on what counts, each other, our collective well-being, and all the learning that we can achieve during Term 4. With all the events that have had to be cancelled over the course of the past 20 months, there were plenty of nervous moments leading up to the Year 12 graduation this year. And while for the second year in a row, we weren't able to have all parents and family members joining in for the celebrations, it was great that the persistence, resilience and mutual respect event could go ahead with some family and supporters at the school to cheer on the achievements of our incredible graduating class of 2021. One of the messages shared at the ceremony was, if you can choose between comfort or growth, always pick growth. To some extent, we haven't had any choice in the matter since the pandemic hit our shores 20 months ago, but it's one thing to say embrace challenge and growth, and it's quite another to actually do so. This is exactly what our students have done during these trying times. We've been disappointed at what we haven't been able to do and what's been taken away from us. But rather than throwing the towel in, there's been a collective rolling up of the sleeves and digging deep so that we can continue to grow and learn more about ourselves and the world around us. As principal of this school, I couldn't be prouder. I know these attributes will hold our students, those graduating and those continuing with us in 2022 in very good stead. A huge congratulations to the class of 2021. We're so proud of you and know you'll be amazing at all that you put effort into in the future. I thank everyone in our school community for every moment of blood, sweat, and tears you've expended this year to support uh, our students' well-being and learning. The growth mindset we've had, we've all had to display is a tremendous model for the impressionable minds of our teenagers as we continue to navigate these tumultuous times. The partnership between school and home has grown stronger over the past year through necessity and because that is what education must be. 
I don't take this sense of shared responsibility for granted. And again, I thank you for being the village that is raising the children in our care. In, <clears throat> enjoy the summer break and look for the rays of hope that come with the anticipation of new year. Until we see each other again shortly, stay safe. That is an inspiring message from Dave Clift, the principal of Warrnambool Secondary College. Now we'll have a few statistics about school from the CARA My School website. The enrollment is a total of 1,234 students, 623 boys and 611 girls. The ICSIA value is a bit below average at 981. Uh, upper 25 parental income is in the 10% highest, and the second level parental income is in 19 is at 19%. The third is 25%, which is below 50 to 29%, making them lower middle class. The lowest is 25% to 41%. So really a school with many disadvantaged students with 4% speaking a language other than English and 6% of them are Indigenous. As far as their finances go, they have uh, recurrent grants from the Australian government of 3.3 million and the Victorian government of 12.7 million. Fees and parental contributions make up 1.2 million and other private contributions is $409,983. Per pupil, that makes $14,946 and the total capital over the last three years is 4.2 million. As far so as our results means, go, of course, that means that um, uh, the uh, actual per pupil expenditure on these children is well below the resource standard for uh, such a large number of disadvantaged children. But this, well, these people have done very well, um, the, both the uh, parents and the teachers and the children. Um, the parents have raised quite a lot of money and... Um, they have to pay fees of almost $1,000 a year for their children. Uh, that, that's if they can afford it, of course. If they can't, then education has to be free. But um, they're voluntary contributions, aren't they? But um, you must remember, too, that this is a school in a, um, a regional area, in a, in a fairly big town, which uh, also has a lot of very wealthy private schools because Warrnambool is a uh, town with a hinterland of the very wealthy uh, parts of Western Victoria going right back into the 19th century. So uh, I would say this was underfunded and uh, that they're, they're really um, kicking well above their, uh, their uh, funding level. Absolutely. With um, an ICSIA value that low, it it really shows just what a disadvantaged community they're working with. When you consider the absolute average is 1,000, and for those who don't know, ICSIA is the Index of Community Socioeconomic Advantage. So if your school is below 1,000, that means your school is disadvantaged. So for children to be getting a good education and such a positive sounding experience from this school, for only $14,000 when um, the SRS is around $16,000, that's an that's absolutely amazing. It just shows just how much how much hard work public school teachers put in with so very few resources. Yes, there's a level of unfairness, but uh, 
what's new. We've become used to that, haven't we? Yeah, but, despite um, their disadvantage, their results are looking quite good. The NAPLAN yep. results are just fine, and most of the senior students receive a senior secondary certificate. The school also offers a broad curriculum and vet courses were well attended. Yes. So it's um, they're doing a good job on, on a smelly smell of a breezy rag out there. But um, I think our time is gone. And uh, I have to thank Dale, who under quite a lot of pressure is producing this uh, for her, uh, this, uh, this uh, production for us in her flat there in Fitzroy. And I thank uh, Kim and Oliver and Sorrel. Uh, for helping us produce this program today. If you want to find out more about the dogs, then you can go to our website at www.adogs.info. But from Dale, Oliver, Kim and Sol, it's bye for now. Says he.